city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Recent cases like the Central Park Five have brought the issue of false confessions to the attention of the public. But this is not a new issue. In 1819, for instance, Stephen Bourne was just days away from being hanged when he was spared by the sudden discovery of the alleged victim alive and well in New Jersey. He had confessed to murder, although claiming self-defense after his brother, who was also accused and also innocent, had pointed the finger at Stephen, whom he erroneously thought was out of harm's way because he was living in another state. It is almost inconceivable that anyone would confess to a crime he didn't commit. And yet, in a quarter of the 325 people exonerated by DNA evidence in recent decades, a confession was part of the evidence against him or her. Of the 151 exonerations in 2018, 19 involved a false confession. And the scary part about this is the fact that a confession has the most powerful impact on a jury in deciding guilt or innocence. And yet research shows that most jurors are unaware of the factors that are most likely to lead to a false confession. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show. I am delighted to introduce today's guest, Dr. Iris Blandone-Gitlin, a professor of psychology at California State University in Fullerton who serves as an expert witness and conducts research examining social cognitive factors underlying jurors' perceptions of police interrogation tactics and confession evidence. Welcome to the show, Iris. Thank you for having me, Joni. So let's start with just talking about how common are false confessions. Well, false confessions are actually more common than people believe. Part of those numbers are coming from the Innocence Project in New York, where they have cases of people who have been exonerated, which include the Central Park Five. Their cases that have proven to be innocent through DNA evidence. So it's a very particular, very special set of cases. And out of those cases, this 25% or so are uh, involved in a false confession, and that false confession was the primary evidence against them. We look at other projects around the country, for example, the National Registry of Exonerees. We also know from surveys of police officers, in a recent survey that was conducted by psychologists, one of the questions was, what is the percentage of false confessions that you think you've elicited or you've seen? The number is close to 5% that police themselves report of obtaining false confessions. You know, some other numbers are between 10 and 20% when scientists look at actual cases in the real world. I'm sure this is just the tip of the iceberg because we all know that 95% of cases, criminal cases, don't result in a trial. So that obviously doesn't take into account things like the number of plea deals. Absolutely. And that's a good point that you make. We're only talking about those cases that actually went to trial or that that we have conclusive evidence that the individuals are innocent and, and scientists have been able to study. We believe that is more than that, than what we're actually reporting. So why would an innocent person confess? 
That is a good question that I get asked a lot, including my family, who still, after all these years of me doing this research and talking about it, they don't believe that innocent people would falsely confess to a crime that they didn't commit. In particular, a crime as serious as rape and murder. There's just no way that people can imagine themselves in that situation. And primarily, when we're talking about confessions in a criminal investigation, we're talking about police-induced confessions of interrogation can lead someone to confess to a crime that they didn't commit. And there are some people more vulnerable to pressures, to the situational forces of interrogation. And so those individuals are going to also be more likely to falsely confess to a crime that they didn't commit. Who would be more vulnerable to these kind of situational pressures? Age is a factor. We know that the younger people are significantly more susceptible to the pressures of interrogation, to the tactics, to the whole process. And we've seen that in stories told over and over with the Central Park Five. That is a category of individuals that they are a high, high risk compared to adults. And then we have other individuals who are psychologically vulnerable individuals, people who have, you know, low IQ or some cognitive impairment or some mental disease or psychological issues or or have a compliance personality or highly suggestible. Those individuals, you talked about juveniles, which I have a particular interest in because I did quite a bit of work years ago, working with sexual abuse and physical abuse victims and interviewing children who had potentially been abused. And I know that psychologists were aware that you can't interview child or even teenage victims in the same way that you might interview an adult sexual assault victim. And so we, there's this common understanding and awareness that we have a special situation here. We have to adapt our interviewing, our treatment to this particular child, their developmental level, their age. And yet we treat juvenile suspects in much the same way that we treat adult suspects. That's a good point that you make. When you label somebody a suspect, kids' gloves come off. If they're a victim, there's all these mechanisms in place to interview, to treat those kids, to make sure that their memories are preserved, to make sure that you elicit as accurate and as complete information as possible so that you're not misled as the investigator. There are specially trained investigators and forensic interviewers who who handle uh, kids who have been traumatized. But then when a kid is labeled as a suspect or believed to be a suspect, that all of those things are off. When you look at the tactics that police use with juveniles, they're the same tactics that you're using with adults. There's no accommodation. There's a lack of understanding of how memory works and how vulnerable people can be easily to create false beliefs, to give false information. I have a lot of friends who are police officers and I have heard on more than one occasion, you know, I don't really know how to interview or I wish I knew more about how to interview juvenile suspects. I mean, certainly we could agree that there are hopefully rare situations where it's a deliberately coerced confession, an abuse of power, an abuse of the proper interrogation tactics, or even maybe, you know, using some tactics that used to be endorsed but are no longer seen as good or effective. There is this, as you mentioned, this lack of kind of awareness. And I'm wondering 
wondering from your perspective as an expert witness, what kind of things do we need to help police officers understand in terms of training about interrogating juvenile suspects? Many police officers want new tools. They want to be able to do this in a way that maximizes the amount of information that they get and the quality of information that they get. Because obviously, they're in the business of catching the bad guy. They want good information. And so what can we do about this? Well, not just with juveniles, but also with adults interrogation. We need new approaches. We need evidence-based, scientifically valid techniques. We need to just change the labels. We, we need to move away from interrogation and look at this as an information gathering interview or investigative interviewing. What tactics, what procedures can we use to elicit information, not a confession per se. If a confession happens to occur, then that's great and we can follow that up. But it's more about getting information that can be helpful to continue to investigate and solve the crime. So give me an example of a strategy that you think would be more helpful than some of the strategies that are used right now. In the last 10, 15 years, psychologists have been working hard on trying to develop strategies because of that concern that you hear police officers themselves. What can we do? You know, thinking about this as an information gathering interview where you build good rapport with the individual, where you show compassion or sympathy, find some common ground, speak the same language, not just chatting away with somebody about where they live and those kinds of things, but actually bonding with that person. That's really difficult to do, of course, when the police believe that that individual is a child molester or, or you know, that individual killed someone. But that's part of the process, you know, to really build rapport and maintain that rapport throughout the entire session. Then use strategic kinds of questions that helps someone who is telling the truth actually retrieve that information from memory. At the heart of interviewing and interrogation is memory. Even if it's the guilty party, if it's the perpetrator, it's the memory of the perpetrator that you want to tap. You want good information to investigate and to solve the crime. So use strategic kinds of questions that, but to use those kinds of questions, you have to have information, you have to investigate, you have to gather evidence before so that you can take the truth teller to where they could retrieve information easily but also make it difficult for the liar. The more questions you ask, especially if they're open-ended questions or follow-up questions or repeat the question in a different way, you know, those kinds of questions make it more difficult for the liar because the liar is trying, you know, the person who's trying to hide something. So by asking strategic questions and also strategic use of evidence, what is called the Sue technique, basically just, you know, let the person talk and ask questions at strategic points. And then, if you have evidence, confront them with that evidence. For the liar, this is going to be problematic because if they tell you a different story before and now you have evidence that it suggests something else, then it's going to be difficult for them to keep up with it, the lie. It's interesting because one of the things that you are saying, I think, makes sense. And yet I know there are probably people listening who are kind of going, what is all this stuff about, you know, building rapport and developing sympathy? You don't know the people I work with every day and the people I arrest. And if I didn't get in there and really hammer this person, I would never get to the truth. 
this person would just keep lying to me. They wouldn't give me the evidence. How do you respond to that? Well, there might be some people like that. There might be some people that no matter what you do, you know, even if you torture them, they're not going to give you information. But I think the majority of people who are guilty come into the interrogation room with the idea that they're going to see what evidence is there, uh, you know, against them. This is actually something that the researchers have found, you know, when they survey people convicted of crimes and, and they ask them the impressions of interviewing and interrogations. One of the things that you find is that a huge percentage come in not really deciding what they're going to do. And so what moves them is the approach that the investigators use. And those tactics that are oppressive and aggressive and confrontational tend to lead people to resist and not talk. The other kinds of tactics actually lead to a more openness about talking. You know, I I really agree with that because I do a lot of violence risk assessments. And one of the things, it always surprises me, I'll make really clear with the person I'm interviewing that I have access to their medical records, I have access to their legal records. So they know that I know a lot of information about them. And yet I will tell them, I'm going to pretend like I know nothing about you and I will spend as much time as necessary asking him or her all the questions that I have to ask. And a lot of them, I've read different versions of what the people writing consider to be the truth. And the point as I'm making are two. One is I've reviewed all that information ahead of time. And number two, I wait until yes. the end of that, of that session to then say, hey, you know, you said this and yet this is what I'm reading. How do I make sense of this? How do you, what do you make of this? You're telling me one thing. I think I do get more information. It's a different context interview, but there's some there, I think. Absolutely. There are similarities and those are things that work. And what you just described is is part of what is called the suit technique, the strategic use of evidence. You you ask open-ended questions, try not to be suggestive or linear questions, and then you let them talk. And if they say something that is kind of not, consistent with the evidence that you already know, then you nicely say, well, can you explain this? And so it's kind of hard for people who are trying to hide or to be deceptive to actually explain that evidence. And that's when you start seeing the inconsistencies, when you start seeing the implausible kinds of scenarios that they give you. They're just confabulating. You know something's up, right? And so, yeah. So, I mean, what you're describing in the clinical setting is very applicable to the investigative setting. And so going back to the kids, right, I think that these kinds of strategies, especially building report and especially being trying to to be suggestive, trying to not be leading in the kinds of questions is critically important with kids. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk more about juvenile confessions and also talk more about some of the specific techniques that are more likely to lead to a false confession. You are listening to Threat of Evidence. This is Dr. Joni Johnson. We'll be back in just a moment. Spreading the outloud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and our guest today is an expert in the area of false confessions, which is certainly a topic that many of us have heard about over the past several years with the exoneration of the Central Park Five and other uh, similar cases. Iris, tell me how you typically get involved in a false confession case. Sure. Typically, I get a call from an attorney. I try to spend a few minutes with them to understand what the issues are, what the concerns are before I'm engaged in a particular case. They are concerned about the reliability of the confession. They believe that the confession is false or they're concerned that the way an admission was obtained was a curse. In many of these cases, because that's my area of expertise, involves a, a Hispanic suspect or someone from a different culture. And in some of those cases, the attorneys are concerned about any cultural or any language barriers, any issues that they cannot understand because they don't speak the language, they don't understand the culture. And so I, you know, oftentimes in those cases, I have to evaluate the interrogation in Spanish, my native language, and I evaluate those cases as I would any other case, but of course, paying particular attention about any cultural issues that might create an environment that puts these individuals at a higher risk for false unreliable confession. So how would culture come into play here? We're talking about people from collectivistic cultures, primarily from Latin America. Culture can influence suspects. Their knowledge, not understanding the legal system in the U.S. and being more focused on their experience at home with the police. Iris, tell me about a recent case that you've had that you're involved in. Sure. A recent case that comes to mind at the moment is one, let's just call him Mr. Poss. Mr. Poss was accused of sexually abusing his sister-in-law, who happened to be a minor. So he's actually a young person himself. He was uh, 21 at the time. And he was married, but uh, you know had a sister-in-law who was a minor, and so he was accused of sexually abusing her, and also uh, possibly uh, having touched his even younger sister-in-law, but that was not clear. So what happened was that the attorney called me to evaluate this interrogation primarily because she was concerned that this was a false confession. She saw a lot of the tactics that psychologists are concerned about and that are linked to the elicitation of false confessions. And so she was concerned that this was a false confession case. And so she was also concerned about the language barriers because Mr. Poss uh, was from Mexico and didn't speak English. And so the entire interrogation was in Spanish. And so the attorney who did not speak Spanish herself, even though she could get the interrogation translated, was concerned that there may be some cultural issues, some uh, language issues that she could not see. And so she wanted me to evaluate that case. And what was interesting was that it was a three-part kind of interrogation. In part one, we have a detective, and this is actually typical of these cases where you have a detective who doesn't speak the language, who doesn't speak Spanish, and they're the lead detective, but they have to rely on someone to do the translation. 
And so typically there's a second person in the room who does the translation, but the second person is not a, a trained, certified interpreter. They're usually just somebody from the department who speaks Spanish. It could be another detective, but it could be just an officer who in many cases have what we call survival Spanish because they don't really speak the language well. And so in, in this particular case, we have that. We have a detective who speaks English, only English, and we have an officer who speaks somewhat of okay Spanish. And so it is here that they, through this process, they suggest many things to Mr. Paz, including tactics that suggest some sort of leniency. And he's denying, 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 and he's confused about what the charges are, and he's denying and trying to explain that he didn't do this, this makes no sense. But at some point, the detective says, because it gets easier for them to just say, okay, so if you're telling the truth, then let's make sure that we can test for that. So you're willing to take a polygraph test, which is a test that would tell me that you're telling the truth so that you can go home today. So Mr. Paz thinks that actually believes, come to believe that this machine is going to show that he's telling the truth. At this point, he's completely very nervous because he doesn't know what's happening. He's not understanding the severity of what's going on. He waived his rights without really knowing. Uh, it seems like he was confused, but the interrogation continued. And then he waited a few hours for someone to come in and conduct a polygraph examination. And so this is very typical, actually, of these cases, especially the cases of child sexual abuse or, you know, sexual assault, where other evidence is difficult to obtain. So, you know, part of the process is to try to get a confession. And so this Mr. Paz was placed in, in a room where he was hooked up to a polygraph machine by this individual who claimed to just be someone who helps the police. He didn't say that he actually works for the police and that he actually was someone who was going to be conducting an interrogation. And at this point, he spoke Spanish. His language skills were better, uh, but he took advantage of that. So he took the role of interrogator, even though he was not the lead detective, took the role of the interrogator and really led through about three-hour session, led Mr. Paul's basically shape his behavior, you know, through clapping or touching his arms or his leg to let him know that everything was okay, that if he would say what the truth was, which was defined early on, what the truth was, right, which is admission, things could be better for him, that he could go home that day. And so you see in this three hours, which the attorney could not see because she doesn't speak the language. You know, she could look at it for three hours, but she didn't understand what's going on. Of course, she could look at the translation later on, but I was able to pick up many, many things, including, you know, the shaping of, of Mr. Paz's behavior, to shape him to say certain things and to behave in a certain way, and also to realize that, you know, the polygraph machine was not connected. They did the whole test, but it was not connected to anything. And the polygraph examiner told him that he failed the polygraph. So it was a lie. We know that that's one of the tactics. Police could lie about evidence, could make up evidence in the context of interrogation. And then when the third part was when the detective comes in after the polygraph examiner gets him to a point to admit and to have the story, the detective comes in in the last part and through the interpreter 
they asked the question, you know, so tell me, I heard that you now are telling the truth. And so Mr. Pa starts saying, no, I didn't do this. I just, you know, because he's off the pressure, right, from the polygraph examination. So he says, no, I didn't do this. But then the polygraph examiner comes in and says, no, 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 remember that we, what we discussed, the story that, we were, that you were going to tell. And so, of course, Mr. Paz repeats that story. But I think part of that, in terms of culture, part of it is that, you know, of course, we can't measure this, but we can talk about how people from individualistic countries, people that come from other cultures, where you don't really stand up to the police, you don't really, or people of authority, even if it's not something that you agree with, you just have to agree because of the power that they have or the perceived power that, that you think they have. And in, you know, in some instances, you don't want the police to do something worse you know, or to, you know, to engage in worse behaviors uh, towards you. So they comply. So they see more, he seemed more compliant to me. There was evidence in his behaviors, what he was saying, he was more compliant. Although we cannot measure that, right, in particular directly, but we can talk about it and we can talk about the research. And that's difficult, I would imagine, because we've talked about some of the other psychological vulnerabilities in terms of being a juvenile or being young, uh, being perhaps intellectually impaired or, or severely mentally ill. And those kind of make sense. I think for a lot of people, they'd kind of be like, well, I mean, what does this mean exactly? Just because somebody's from a different country, even somebody from a country that tends to be more collectivist, I mean, how do we deal with that? We can't let everybody off the hook. Because Absolutely. they're from a different country. So how do you, how does that factor in? Right. And that's a good point that you made. We can't just say, oh, because they come from a, another culture, they're already vulnerable. Uh, no, we, we have to see that what matters is the whole process of interrogation, the context, all of the tactics, all of the process that we have to see. And what we can say is that people from other cultures who have have particular kinds of experiences, which the attorney could investigate and actually support, if they have those kinds of experiences, it is possible that they are at a higher risk. And we see that in the research, that they are higher risk to give false confessions or to admit or to adopt some of the language or some of the things that the police officers are offering. We've talked about a lot of the psychological vulnerabilities. We've kind of danced around a little bit the specific, I guess, tactics or strategies. But I do want to talk about what the research indicates in terms of what specific strategies or interrogation techniques are most likely to lead to a false confession. Well, right now, you know, it's a whole process. But the two main, if we're going to break it down to tactics that psychologists have studied a great deal, is what we call the false evidence ploy. This is making up evidence or suggesting that the police have evidence when, in fact, they don't against the suspect. And this is to make the case to convince the suspect that, you know, there's a mountain of evidence against them and that there's just no way out, that, you know, things are not going to go well because there's mountain of evidence. So the false evidence ploy, which I suggested earlier in, in the case of Mr. Paz, that was a fake polygraph examination. And they told him that, you know, the, the examiner told him that he failed the test. And so that's a false evidence. And the second tactic that is highly problematic is what we call the minimization tactics, which is just a set of tactics that uh, sort of downplays the seriousness of uh, the offense 
and minimizes the consequences of the offense. And a lot of that is implied messages of leniency. And so together, implied messages of leniency in the context of saying we have all this evidence against you, you know, a rational person, anybody, you know, in that context would say, well, there's this supposedly all this evidence uh, and people believe that it, it is true. Uh, and I have this option here of saying that I did it and that I made a mistake. People usually take that option, that, that particular minimize, you know, the theme or the, or the option of that carries less consequences or, you know, so. That kind of makes sense in a way because really what I think you're suggesting and what the research suggests is it becomes really like a weighing of the risk and rewards. And if you have it presented like, okay, you're not going to get away with this. So we've already have the goods on you. So that avenue is, or option is kind of closed. And if you confess, then we're going to make it easier for you. You can kind of see that what initially seems like such an illogical thing, why would anybody confess to something that they didn't do, becomes a little more logical to that person. Yes, of course. Part of the process of interrogation in the U.S. is to move the suspect from denial to admission. And to do that, part of that process is to get that person who is confident that they could withstand this process, break down that confidence and get them to a point of hopelessness. And once you get them to a point of hopelessness, which includes throwing out all this evidence, this supposed evidence, then you have to give them options, right? And so the option is, well, if you say that you made a mistake, then that's going to be okay. But if you don't say that, then it's going to be seen like you are calculated monster that wanted to do this, that you, you, you cannot be rehabilitated. And so eventually when you get that person to the hopelessness point, in order to get out of there, when they see this hopeless, that they can't, they're not going to go anywhere for the innocent suspect. Innocence is not on the table. Denying is not an option. Then they just select, you know, whatever the one scenario that seems less problematic or less consequential. So let's take the case of Mr. Is it Paz? Yes, P-A-Z. Okay. okay. So Mr. Paz, you've evaluated him. And let's say that you have concluded that there were some tactics that were involved that you feel like are problematic or put this person at risk for a false confession. You've reviewed all the tapes. You believe this confession is false. Now, what do you do with this information? Something that may be misinterpreted. I never tell the attorney that I think the confession is false. Because we, we really cannot say that unless there's other independent corroborating evidence out there that shows that this person is innocent. All I can say to the attorney is that these statements, admissions and statements are unreliable, if they believe that they're unreliable. And I can point out, I can highlight all the tactics and I can show them the process and the problems. And so what do we do? Well, the attorney, one of the things they do is they draft up a motion to suppress the confession based on, like in the case of Mr. Paz, being involuntary and also unreliable. So reliability in that case, it was an issue because everything that he said was just repetitions of what the examiner, the polygraph examiner gave him. He was just repeating the story that was fed to him. 
you know, he didn't even know what the details of the charges were until the polygraph examiner told him about it. That's what we call contamination. So, you know, when the suspect gets information from the investigator. So that's unreliable because in essence, you know, it's just repetition. He adopted what he was told. He didn't give any new information at all that can be useful to investigate. So the attorney will, will try to get the confession suppressed. Um, and if that doesn't work, then the next step, which usually doesn't work, the next step is to have an expert like myself testify in court and educate the jury about the science, the process of interrogation and the science linked to false confessions and talk about, you know, confession evidence, interrogations. And as part of that, the attorney obviously will develop some sort of strategy to cross-examine the detectives, highlight the process of interrogation, the tactics through cross-examination. And then the expert comes in and talks about the, the process and the science behind that process and what we have to say. I know you've done quite a bit of work in researching jurors' perception of some of these issues. I'm wondering how receptive you think jurors are to some of this false confession testimony. Well, I have a biased sample because I would only testify in cases where I believe that I can help the jury, where I believe that I can be helpful. I just don't testify just because the attorney wants me to testify. No, I mean, that's part of it, of course. Part of it is a decision that I make with the attorney. But the other part is I want to make sure that whatever I have to offer is going to be helpful to them. So I find that in most cases, at least where I can tell from their nonverbal behavior, that they are listening and they're paying attention to what I'm saying. And in most of these cases, we get good outcomes. i give you an example. There was one case in San Diego the interrogation took place at the client's home. So this was not at the police station, which is, you know, it's a whole different environment. So you would argue that this, because it took place at his home, it was a more supportive environment, right? Where there should be less stress. And so that was true. And I talk about that, you know, that environment plays a huge role. The physical environment plays a huge role in terms of inducing stress or reducing stress. But there were so many issues, including statements that suggested some sort of harsher punishment. If he didn't confess, there was going to be harsher punishment, which meant his face will be posted in the local news and everybody's going to see his face. That was part of the tactics. And the jurors so I spent a whole day testifying. I was really surprised because, you know, it was tough. The defense attorney covered a lot of things, but the prosecution needed to cover a lot more things. And so I was there the whole day. And, you know, I talked about all of the science. And I also talked about the research that shows how to do this better. Psychology has moved from showing that, that there are errors and how those errors occur and what are the boundary conditions of those errors. But we also, we've moved to what can we do about it, right? How can we help? How can we do this better? So I talked about all of that. And so anyway, so I left. I, I was tired. It was a long day. And then the next day, it was a not guilty verdict. And I was told by the attorney that when I left, the jurors gave me a thumbs up. <laughs> and uh, I didn't see that. But he, he told me that. And then I did, a few weeks later, I received an email from one of the jurors thanking me for the testimony. 
This is a great place to take a break on a victory note. When we come back, we're going to finish up our really interesting discussion about false confessions. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and you are listening to Thread of Evidence. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Thought of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we are talking about false confessions. Iris, we've talked a lot about research and how important psychological research has been in illustrating some of the factors that can lead to false confessions. Tell me about some of the specific research studies and how they have kind of validated the fact that some of these strategies can lead to these kinds of confessions. Well, in psychology, we cannot say and I mentioned earlier the tactics that you asked me specifically that we're concerned about, what we call the minimization tactics and the false evidence ploys, you know, the lying about evidence. Those are two important ones. And we know a lot about those and other tactics because we have taken to study those tactics in the lab at the university. And in the lab, we can simulate situations. We can never, ever create the exact situations from the real world. We could only simulate. Uh, We can try to isolate the psychological factors and understand those tactics affect people psychologically. And we then generalize to the real world from those studies. And how they're done is basically you ask participants, you volunteer participants, and some of them you pay them, you ask them to commit a crime. So it's a mock crime, either uh, cheat on a test, a problem, uh, which at the university level, cheating is a very fear-inducing event. We try to mimic as much as we can to the real world. So cheating or breaking into the professor's office and stealing an exam key, those kinds of things that are criminal acts that are highly stressful and, and have uh, serious consequences. So half of the people commit this crime the other half do not. But all of them are accused. So we have guilty and innocent, right? But all of them are accused of committing this crime. And then they are interrogated in different ways, depending on the study. 
Some studies will manipulate the false evidence ploy. A lot of the studies will be manipulating forensically relevant factors, okay? Just like we describe about the false evidence ploys or the minimization tactics or any, you know, building report, whatever it is that we're looking at, you know, it will be manipulated in those studies. And then what we do is we look at different outcomes, the behaviors of the interviewer. Sometimes the interviewers are trained in particular techniques, sometimes they're not depending on the study. And we look at the behavior of the interviewers, what they actually do, the behaviors of the mock suspects, how they behave, what they respond. We code, you know, we analyze what they're saying. And also the big one, what is the rate of true confessions? And what is the rate of false confession as a function of each of those manipulations? It is only through this particular process that we can make claims strong claims about the link between those tactics and confession evidence, true or false confessions. And then what happens is that we cannot make, have conclusions just based on simulation studies. We really have to go beyond that. Um, we have to look at real-world cases. So there are people who study these real-world cases, these archival studies where they assess real-world cases and they look for patterns that seem similar across these cases. And we get data there that supports the finding from the laboratory studies. Um, there's also studies, survey studies, where you survey police officers, incarcerated individuals, uh, attorneys, judges, and you get information from those individuals, and those different groups, and what you find is that there is some correspondence between what they're saying, they're reporting about the likelihood of true and false confession as a function of those tactics, you know, in the laboratory studies and the archival studies. So the three lines of evidence that helps us come up with these conclusions that we make about the link between interrogations and confessions. So give me an example of a study where you have had half commit a crime, half not commit a crime. And then you've perhaps manipulated the actual interview or interrogation strategies to see what you get. In one study, one famous study that was conducted by Melissa Rosano, in this study, she had, and I talked a bit about this already, she had participants, uh, induced some participants to cheat on a problem-solving task at the university. And half of those people cheated, half of the, the others didn't. They were induced to cheat by having a plant, another a plant of the researcher who in, you know, tried to, to make them cheat. So it was not something that they just did on their own. It was something that was induced by the researchers. So half of them, because they cheated, they were considered uh, the guilty group. The other group was the innocent group. And then they were interrogated um, with, in the, specifically in that study, they were looking at the effects of these tactics, what we call the minimization tactics, the downplaying of the seriousness of the offense, in terms of comparing those tactics that sort of suggest or imply leniency, right? That there's going to be some benefit uh, if you confess. In exchange of a confession, you get some benefit. So they wanted to compare that to explicit promise of leniency, right? So a deal, let's make a deal and be more explicit to see if functionally speaking, 
those two are the same. And why that was important to do is because in the U.S., the police is not allowed to promise anything in the interrogation room, but they are allowed to imply, right? And so what they were trying to show is that the implied promises of leniency functionally are the same as the direct promises of leniency. And so what you find in that study is that exactly that, that the false confession rate the true confession rate, by the way, just increases from using no tactics to using the tactics, increases significantly so. So true confessions always increases in these studies as a function of this tactic. But then we see an exponential increase in the false confession rate. The people did falsely confess to cheating. The innocent individuals did confess to cheating as a function of these tactics. And significantly so. In some cases, it tripled the percentage of false confessions. Now, how can you generalize university studies to the real world? I mean, there are going to be some people who are kind of going, yeah, I guess I can see it in a laboratory when you have total control over everything and you can manipulate, give scripts, et cetera. But what about things are messy in the real world? Yes. And that's a good criticism, right? It's a good question. You know, how can you generalize? And like I said earlier, the only way you can do that is Uh, Number one, having a whole body of research that has shown, you know, replicated the same effects in different contexts, right? So having these studies replicate in, in, you know, other labs, other universities, different contexts. So, you know, we know that in terms of the psychological effects, you know, those tactics have a particular psychological effect. And so then how do you generalize to murder? You know, cheating is one thing. You know, murder is another thing, right? Well, when you see the archival studies, the, the studies where they're actually evaluating real cases, not just a false confession cases, but real interrogation cases, and looking at the outcomes, you see that these tactics are present, right? And they're linked. Um, and then the false confession cases, you can see that these particular tactics are always present with those false confession cases. And then, again, like I said earlier, you know, other kinds of of, of research, survey research, also tells us the same story. So that's how we generalize. That's how we make these conclusions, by having evidence from different domains and strong evidence from those different domains. You know, interesting. I've written several articles on false confessions, and some of the pushback I've gotten from readers has been, you know, why are you focusing on false confessions? I mean, we need to be focusing on getting more true confessions. And if there are a few false confessions that kind of weave their way in there, well, I'm not too worried about it. I'm more worried about people who are guilty confessing and getting convicted. And I understand that on the one hand, for sure. But it, but I think the point that we haven't been real clear about is that for every person who falsely confesses, even if that person's convicted, which we hope is not the case, there right. is somebody out there who's guilty, who is getting away with it. That's right. It's another error, right? So the first error is getting an innocent person, a person that didn't commit that crime, convicted or charged, Hopefully, there will be some safeguards along the way that we can identify those people, although that often fails. But there's a big concern about the guilty party going, you know, continue to commit crimes. And you see that in the Central Park Five case, right? The rapists continue to commit crimes and escalated all the way to murder. That's the, the big problem with these kinds of errors, because it's not just one. It's not just the innocent person, but it's also the guilty party 
can have freedom to continue doing crimes. And that, that's something that the police doesn't want. So what we need to focus, and I think psychology is there, is focusing on how can we help the police? How can we give them evidence-based approaches and actually train them and train them not just in the use of this of new approaches that you know together with actually you know with collaboration that's what the many researchers in the US are doing collaborating with law enforcement to come up with approaches that are not just scientifically based but also you know based on the experience of police officers I absolutely agree with that because I do think teamwork is so important and particularly multidisciplinary teamwork. We've talked a lot about interrogation techniques in our interview today, but I want to touch on the fact that there are other kinds of false confessions. And I am familiar with a case out of Sweden where you had a man who was in a psychiatric hospital who had confessed to one murder initially, and there was some question as to whether he was guilty. But as a result of this therapy, which it sounded honestly like turned into almost like an interrogation in and of itself, this man ended up being convicted and confessing to over 30 murders for over a 10-year period of time. And so here they are thinking they have this serial killer who is confined to a psychiatric hospital. And in reality, as it turned out, because of this kind of bad therapy, apparently, he was guilty of none of these. So I think that there are lots of ways people can their memory can be manipulated or their behavior can be manipulated. And I know you've done some research on memory manipulation. Maybe you can touch on that for a minute. Yes. So those types of confessions are called internalized false confessions because these are the ones where, and these are rare, where people actually believed of having committed the crime. So in many, many cases, most commonly, you know, what you find in the police-induced confessions People know that they didn't do it. They're just confessing because of the situation. But they might hold a false belief for a little bit. But then after they're off the pressure, they know that they didn't do it. But in the case that you just described, they actually come to believe they committed these crimes. And yes, bad therapy, bad interrogation tactics where you go beyond the social influence of these tactics and actually start manipulating memory which memory can be manipulated easily. That's one thing that uh, officers are not trained in, in how to handle memory. They're trained on that in certain contexts, and, and they think about victims, and they think about witnesses, but not suspects' memories can also be manipulated, could also be contaminated. And so this is going beyond the, you know, the tactics that I just mentioned. This is using suggestive questions, leading questions, giving suggestive scenarios where particular stories are suggested. And, and people who are vulnerable, like in this case that you mentioned, it seems like this person was, will have a hard time keeping track of what's real and what's not real. People who have our time doing that will integrate information that's given to them either through the suggestive scenarios or suggestive questions and integrate it and put it into their own memories and start confabulating and adding. And actually, there is some research now, in particular, if your audience is interested, uh, uh, Dr. Julia Shaw, she has done some studies in which she shows that not only using the you know, typical interrogation tactics, but also going beyond that, you can actually plant false memories of committing crime or having committed crimes. And so we've shown that in the lab, but we also have the real world cases, like the one that you just mentioned. Well, and there's also, of course, all of the false memories of sexual abuse 
that occurred in the United States without getting too far off track. But there have been a number of therapists who've been sued for, I guess, allegedly at least, using these suggestive questionings where people began to remember things that didn't happen. Right, exactly. But in terms of the memory manipulation process, it can be the same. It could be similar. What we didn't know before Julia Shaw's studies was the extent to which, you know, you can manipulate people to believe that they actually committed crimes. We knew that from other studies, you know, minor studies and from also real world cases out that was possible. But what Julia Shaw's studies show is that People can develop full-on memories for committing crimes. So having some sort of memory of being at a crime scene with police officers by the process of memory manipulation, it beyond the social influence of the regular interrogation tactics. And I see this in some of the cases that I get. I see, you know, how people are moved from actually believing that, you know, of course saying that they didn't do it, they don't think that they did to starting to develop a false belief that they actually did it. Because you can start seeing how they start confabulating and adding into their story things that they heard earlier, where they, they're not really distinguishing between what they know and what that, it was told to them. And, you know, you had in your show Elizabeth Loftus, who, you know, she's the pioneer of this research on, on misinformation. You know, when people are given information that is inaccurate, but is sort of consistent to what they know, or what they think they know, they make that part of their memory and they revise their memory, rewrite their memory and believe in that memory. The same processes could, under certain conditions, happen with suspects as well. And I have seen it happen. For most of my cases, once they're out of the interrogation room, you know, most of them don't believe that they did that. But in that moment, and then in the pressure cooker of the interrogation room, when you don't know what's real, when you have a very powerful figures manipulating the truth. And you don't know, you're disoriented, especially if you know, sleep deprived or hungry or you know, other things like that. Um, then you, you, know, you start believing in those things. And it's a very uh, disorienting experience. We know we're getting close to the end of our interview, unfortunately, but I do want to end talking about this idea of collaboration or teamwork between police officers and psychologists and social service agencies and just really working together because my sense is that part of the disconnect or the adversarial relationship that can develop is there seems to be a sense sometimes among law enforcement agencies that this whole emphasis on false confessions is really kind of a focusing on perpetrator rights, you know, at the expense of victim rights or the expense of good police work or whatever. And both of us were talking earlier during a break about this meta-analysis that you were talking about, about that shows that these different strategies are actually more effective than some of the more traditional ones. And maybe you can talk about that as we close. Yes, that's perfect. For us, I think for the majority of psychologists working in this area, we want to work with law enforcement because we want to move to the next step, uh, which is to ensure that they have the tools, the evidence-based tools. And of course, it has to be a collaboration. We can't just do it alone, right? We have to do it together. There's a number of psychologists that have received funding to do this research. And there's a number of studies now out there showing the the effectiveness of the investigative approach, the information gathering approach, uh, in comparison to more of the accusatorial confrontational approach. And so because we have so many of these studies, we can actually do studies of those studies and statistically put it all together into one big study that is called a meta-analysis. 
And in that meta-analysis, uh, which was published by Dr. Chris Meisner, they show the gist of it is that the information gathering approach wins because it induces true confessions, significantly so, and reduces the chances of false confessions. The accusatorial confrontational approach induces both true confessions and false confessions, exponentially. So both, right, especially false confessions. And so no matter which way you look at it, the information gathering approach wins because, of course, errors would always occur with any approach. But the chances of errors are substantially reduced. False confessions are substantially reduced with the information gathering approach. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, we'll have your picture and bio up on the website. But if somebody wants to get a hold of you, is there a quick way that they can? Yes, um, through my email. I hope that you can put my email address on your website, which is iblandon-gitlin at fullerton.edu. We will definitely do that. And again, thanks for your time today and all the interesting information. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to you for listening to yet another episode of Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. 